The NCAA men's basketball tournament is over, and unfortunately, an all-too-familiar team won. Uh, if my team can't win, I usually want somebody new to win. But uh, the talking heads, they got together after that win, and they were reflecting on the Mount Rushmore of college basketball blue bloods. They're deciding on the top four teams who would who should be on this Mount Rushmore top four teams of the men's college basketball program. And with UConn's fifth championship, which tied Indiana, one talking head who happens to be a former Blue Devil, bear that in mind, they decided that, or he decided that Kentucky and UCLA no longer deserve to be on that Mount Rushmore, even though they have numerous championships. Decided that because of recent championships, this talking head felt that North Carolina, Kansas, Yukon, and of course Duke should be on the Mount Rushmore of men's college basketball. Now, many of you probably couldn't care less about that. But this is the way that Sports people think. They think in terms, no matter if you limit it to recent history or just history in general, when they think about the best programs or who the GOATs are, the greatest of all time, they always focus on championships. Did they win a championship? How many championships did they win? Well, Christianity can also be judged on the presence or absence of a championship victory. Christianity stands or falls on the reality of Jesus' victory over death at the resurrection. Now, you wouldn't know this by talking to some people who would profess to be Christians who'd say they don't believe in the resurrection. But listen to how Donald Hagner puts it. He says that the bodily resurrection of Jesus is the sine qua non of the Christian faith. In other words, The resurrection is absolutely essential to Christianity. George Eldon Ladd pointed out in his Theology of the New Testament how the resurrection was at the heart of the Christian message in the beginning. He points out the first Christian sermon, and as he puts it, it's a proclamation of the fact and significance of the resurrection. And he went on to point out that according to Acts, the primary function of the apostles in the earliest Christian fellowship was not to rule or govern, but to bear witness to the resurrection of Jesus. When they replaced Judas in Acts chapter 1, if you read what they were doing, they were replacing, they were trying to provide someone else who could bear witness to the resurrection. That's what they say in Acts 1.22. So Paul puts it this way in 1 Corinthians 15.14. If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. Without the factual, physical, real resurrection, there is no Christianity. Now arguments over Mount Rushmore's and goats, they have kind of arbitrary rules. But... The essence of Christianity rests on the fact of the resurrection. If Jesus was not raised from the dead, there is no hope found in Christian teaching. Again, here's how Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians 15, 19. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most 
to be pitied. Why? Well, because despite what you might hear from TV preachers, Christianity is not about your best life now. Christianity is about true life now, life with God, but it's not a life of perfect bliss. In fact, the New Testament's very honest about the Christian life. Christianity is a, the Christian life is one of difficulty. It calls on you to turn away from what is the easiest, the easiest route to satisfaction. It calls you to say no to what your, your desires tell you to pursue. And if this life is all there is, what is the point to doing that? Christ, in fact, calls you to follow him and be rejected by the world just as he is. And he does that not simply out of some hope in some future heavenly existence. That's not the hope that Jesus presents. He presents the hope of a a reward in a new bodily existence. In a new world, a new resurrected life. So if there is no resurrection, then yeah, pity the poor fool that's listening to a dead man who cannot help you find true satisfaction. If you don't believe in the bodily resurrection of Jesus, you're wasting your time with Christianity. But don't walk out just yet. Because... I know it's hard for us with modern ways of thinking to believe in something like this. What I want you to listen to this morning is Matthew's testimony of what happened to Jesus. Really, in the passage we're going to look at, Matthew 28, 1 through 15, there's a few different testimonies about what happened to Jesus. So you can turn there in your copy of God's Word, or you can use the Pew Bible. You can turn to Matthew 28, where we read earlier. And there are two sets of testimonies in Matthew 28 from two groups of witnesses to what happened on that first Easter Sunday. In verses 1 through 10, we hear the witnesses for the resurrection. And in verses 11 through 15, we hear the witnesses against the resurrection of Jesus. And how you respond to Matthew's testimony determines whether or not you should put your trust in Jesus. The facts of this first Easter morning are the basis for the truth or falseness of Christianity. If Jesus was not the champion over death, there is no reason to listen to him. But if he did conquer the grave, there is no excuse for not worshiping him. So let's look at the first group of witnesses in verses 1 through 10. The witnesses for the resurrection. The first witnesses were a group of women. Now, thankfully, in our day, we accept the testimony of women equally with that of men. You know, we, we recognize the equal credibility of men and women. That was not the case, though. I mentioned that er- a few weeks ago. That was not the case in the first century. Women weren't considered reliable witnesses in court. They were wrongfully disregarded, but not by God. God considered them worthy and reliable witnesses, and that's how he treated them. But we need to consider something from the start here. If you were going to make up a story in Israel in the first century, you would not have used women to be your first witnesses. You would not have done that. Well, think for, for one what that 
how that makes the men writing these gospels, the men leading the church, how did it make them look? They're cowering in fear while the women are bravely going to the tomb. If you're going to create a story to establish your authority in a movement, you don't do that. So, so why does Matthew include these women as the first honored witnesses to the resurrection? Why would he do that? Why would a first century Jewish man do that? Because that's what happened. A first century Jewish writer like Matthew wouldn't make that up. Matthew says that it was after the Sabbath and toward the dawn of the first day of the week. So early on Sunday morning, it's dark when they start off on this journey and they kind of greet the sunrise as they get to the tomb. And Mark mentions another person there. Uh, there are other gospel writers. There, there could have been more. But Matthew centers on these two women, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary. These are the two women that have witnessed everything. They saw the crucifixion. They saw the burial. Now they've come to the tomb. And this is the first instance of, of many uses of this word behold that Matthew uses. It, it's a word that he uses throughout the section to point to something exceptional, something you need to pay attention to. And then he adds with that word behold, he adds multiple uses of this word for seeing. The angel tells the women in verse 6, come see the place where he lay. And in verse 7, he promises that the disciples will see Jesus in Galilee. And Jesus repeats that in verse 10. And then the angel says, see, I have told you. All these uses of behold and see. You understand what the gospel writer here, Matthew, is doing. He's, he's telling you, he's not telling you to take a leap of faith. That is not what Matthew's telling you to do. He is telling you what was observable at the time. He's telling us not to search your feelings to know it's true. That's not what he's telling you to do. He's telling us people actually experienced this. He's telling us what they experienced, what actually happened, not what they felt like happened, not what they imagined to happen. So what did they experience? Well, the first thing to make note of is this great earthquake. It says there was a great earthquake. There had been an earthquake when Jesus died, according to Matthew 27, 51. It's common when people hear that to think that since that was an earthquake just a few days before, this is an aftershock. And, and if you are of a more materialistic mindset and you don't think that there's anything happening in this world other than what you can observe, then that makes sense. But that's not the worldview of the Bible. The Bible presents a universe that is more complex than that. It, it has this universe where there are creatures beyond this dimension named angels. And Matthew states that it was this other worldly, other dimensional creatures arrival on the scene that actually caused this earthquake. It says the angel of the Lord uh, came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. He did not do that to let Jesus out. I think that's a common assumption. None of the gospel writers actually mention Jesus getting out of the tomb. They never mention how he got out. He evidently was already out of the tomb when the stone was rolled away. Now, that's, that's kind of a mystery, but it, it helps us think about something because I think many of us have the wrong idea about what the Bible is saying when it talks about resurrection. Many people think the resuscitation of a dead body multiple days afterward is crazy. Wait, wait till I tell you what the Bible actually says. It doesn't really say that. I think Ladd 
whom I mentioned earlier, he explains this well when he says, Jesus' resurrection is not the restoration to physical life of a dead body. It is the emergence of a new order of life. It is the embodiment in time and space of eternal life. It is the beginning of the eschatological resurrection. Paul explained the difference here. He explained two kinds of bodies in 1 Corinthians 15. There's the mortal bodies that we have. They're corruptible. But then there is the incorruptible bodies that result from the resurrection. So the bodies we now, what we have, they experience death. The resurrected bodies, they're free from corruption and death. They're immortal. They're a part of the eternal state. That is the Christian hope. That's what we look forward to. Not just some spiritual bodiless experience in heaven someday. The Christian hope of the Bible is a physical new body in a new world. And that's what Jesus experienced. Jesus was a part of that new state when he was raised from the dead. That's the testimony of the Gospels. The Gospels present the reality that Jesus' body was physical. We're going to see that with the ladies grabbing hold of his feet. But it also presents the idea that his body was different. This new resurrected body was not the same. So in John 20, 19, it states that Jesus was able to pass through locked doors. So Jesus' resurrected body was able to pass through the stone surrounding of the tomb without needing to move the stone away. Now, you may find that unbelievable. Just consider what these witnesses observed. Now, before the women arrived, the Roman soldiers that were guarding the tomb, they saw this first. The, The ground started shaking violently, and they're out in this eerie early morning. And it's shaking, and then all of a sudden, they saw what looked like a man that's enveloped in light. And so Matthew says his appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. So I think the soldiers in the story respond quite rationally. I mean, everything's shaking. They see this being of light, and so what do they do? They start shaking violently, and and, and they're paralyzed in fear. They drop to the ground. They became like dead men, paralyzed by their fright. And then the Women arrive on the scene, and notice how the angel responds to them. He greets them with the words, do not be afraid. And the wording in Greek, the way that it it words this, it's making a differentiation between the two, between the women and the guards. The guards have a reason to be afraid. He doesn't address them. He lets them drop to the ground. The women do not need to be afraid. And he explains why. He says, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. Now, think about that designation for Jesus. Jesus who was crucified. That is how Jesus is forever known. New Testament makes much of that. That's the the permanent part of the gospel story. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1.23, we preach Christ crucified. He uses actually identical wording as found here. And and the the tense of the, the verb there, in Greek, it highlights the fact that the crucifixion process was completed. So Jesus was not mostly crucified. He was entirely crucified. What was crucifixion? It was not just a means of torture. Crucifixion was a means of execution. If you were crucified, what it's saying is you actually died. So think about what it means for Jesus to be presented in this way. To have 
been presented in this way that he's, he's undergone a shameful and, just to be clear, a discrediting death. Paul, in that same passage I mentioned in 1 Corinthians, he, he says that this idea that the Messiah was crucified was a stumbling block to Jewish people. They could not understand how the Messiah would undergo a death that actually showed that God considered him cursed. They couldn't get past that. So when they look at the Messianic prophecies, when you see these very clear prophecies, they're talking about the Messiah reigning. They're talking about a king who reigns. Not somebody who's defeated, one who's conquering. Not somebody who gets abandoned by God. So in many ways, the crucifixion was the perfect way to discredit any claim to Jesus being the Messiah. But notice, though, what the the angel says about Jesus who is crucified. He says in verse 6, he is not here, for he has risen, as he said. Come see the place where he lay. He says, I know you came here to see a crucified, dead, and buried man. He's not here. He's risen. And he points out that he did exactly what he said he would do. Now, they didn't understand when Jesus made these prophetic pronouncements, he was going to be crucified, he was going to be raised. They didn't understand it. I mean, these women had come to the tomb not on the third day because they thought Jesus was going to be raised. Mark's very clear. They came to finish the burial process. They came to see a dead man. The disciples weren't even going to the grave because they were cowering in fear that the people were going to get them. Nobody thought Jesus was going to be raised. And yet, that's exactly what Jesus said would happen. And it happened. Raised a new resurrected life. And they could see for themselves an empty tomb. Now the angel, he's a messenger angel. The word angel means messenger. He's a messenger of God. And he then gives these women a job. They're now messengers of God. They're the first heralds of the gospel. He tells them, go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. Now they would see him actually before that in Jerusalem, but This is a specific place they need to go to to get this specific message to to go to Galilee, which is what Jesus told them before in chapter 26, because he was going to go there before them and he was going to give them their mission there. So it's very important that they go there. And the angel then closes his message with, see, I have told you. It was kind of an indirect way to point to his heavenly source. He's basically saying the Lord has spoken. I have spoken. It's my job is done. These these women, they do exactly what they're told. They departed quickly from the tomb. And notice that they went in a very rational way. They they went in the way that people would normally go if they had actually had this experience. They go with fear and great joy. I mean, they're still trembling over what they just encountered. That's the normal way to respond to an encounter like that. But they also had encouraging news. So they had this fear mixed with joy. But they didn't make it all the way to the disciples before they ran into someone else. Verse 9 says, and behold, Jesus met them and said, greetings. That's really too formal for us. That's not the way we talk. Really what they said, it sounds like this very informal, hello. And Jesus just greets them in a kind of nonchalant way. But that's not how they respond. They're not nonchalant in their response. They came up and took hold of his feet and worshiped him. Now, if you're... Following in Matthew, you can understand this progression that gets made. 
about how people respond to Jesus. Matthew, from the very beginning, from beginning to end, he is making this argument that Jesus is the king of God's kingdom. And, and he opens with a genealogy saying he's the rightful heir to the throne. And then he has this wild story of a virgin birth. And he, he also mentions this, these magi that come and they pay homage to him. That's the first use of this word translated worshipped. And in that context, they're just doing what you do with a king. You respectfully bow to them. Now, they also, uh, later on, there's people that give a similar response when they come to Jesus and they need something from him. They need his miraculous power. And they do what you do. You get very low. You humbly ask and plead for someone to help you. That's another use of this word. But it's not quite worshiping. And yet what Matthew's doing in using this word is he's, he's pointing out that people are doing things but they don't even realize the significance of who they're. They're not just bowing to any king or any miracle worker. They're bowing to the king of kings who wields the power of God's kingdom. They actually respond better than they know is what Matthew's getting at. And, and Jesus' own disciples, they start to get who Jesus is. If you remember that encounter in chapter 14, when he walks on the water. And at the end of that, what they respond is they realize this is not just the son of God in the sense of being a, a mere descendant of David. He's something altogether more than that. And they worshiped him, and it is closer to what's going on here with these ladies. Now these ladies have just witnessed the risen Lord, and they respond the way that the disciples will respond in verse 17. They respond the way that we should all respond. They, they see in Jesus one who shares in the divine glory and is worthy of divine praise. And David Peterson, in his study of worship in the Bible, he shows that this is a progression in Matthew. Matthew is taking, he's leading us to this point to say, this is how you should respond to Jesus. Not just venerate, not just think he's a really neat person. Worship him. That is how we need to respond to the risen Lord. Now, the women can't stay here and worship, and they have, they have a job to do, and the angel, or Jesus, rather, reminds them of their job. He repeats their mission. He says, as the angel had, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. The rest of the disciples, again, they needed to hear their mission in Galilee. But notice that he calls them my brothers. If we're, if we're remembering what has happened to this point, and these guys have been faithless. They, they abandoned him in Gethsemane. But Jesus hasn't abandoned them. And realize what he's done in calling them his brothers. Back in chapter 12, Jesus explained who his family is. It's not the people that are genetically connected to him. He says, the people that are my brothers and sisters, they're those who listen and they obey the Father by believing in and listening to me. And so... Jesus, he continues to say, these are my brothers. These are my brothers and sisters, the ones who believe in me. And realize what that does. That puts us on this, as believers, we're all on this equal plane. We all have equally the same relationship to Jesus. There are roles in the church. Pastors are supposed to lead the church. But pastors are equally simply brothers and sisters of Jesus. So, Pastors along with everyone, we're all equals in this. Now, I realize that this testimony, it's difficult for us in our day. 
And we've grown up in a world that's taught us how we should view what can and can't happen. So what most of us have been taught takes a story like this and tells us to reject it from the start. Many of us are under the impression that the only things that can be real are things that are repeatable and therefore testable by scientific data or study. So we're taught that reality is understood by means of science, and that requires observable data. So if you have something that is not reproducible, it cannot be scientific, and therefore it cannot be real. Now, the reason we think that is because we've also been taught that the world only works by natural processes. So even if we believe in God, we're taught that he too must work in accordance with these natural processes. If there's an exception or if there's an explanation for something and it does not have an explanation by means of these natural processes, we're taught that it cannot be true. But just be honest. If that's the way that you think, that's faith. You didn't observe that philosophy. You didn't observe it repeatedly. That's an assumption you make. It's actually not scientific. It's not a scientific conclusion. It's a belief. It's a way of looking at the facts. It's not the facts themselves. If someone were to say, I will only believe in what I can observe or experience, they've already broken that rule. Because you never observed or experienced that thought. That you can only believe what is observable, what is reproducible. That's faith. That is not scientific. It's a belief. It's not a fact. But we need to understand something about this way of looking at the world. It doesn't make us more rational than people in the past. This way that I'm talking about, it doesn't make us any more rational. We often can assume that people in the past, where they were silly and they were superstitious. Right? I like how N.T. Wright addressed this at a forum at the University of Texas in Austin in 2014. In response to how skeptical people can be about the idea of the resurrection, he said this. Well, the first thing to say is that people in the first century knew just as well as we do that dead people don't come back. If you read, rather from Homer through Socrates to Plato to Pliny, whenever they mention the possibility of resurrection, they say, come on. As they say, give me a break. We know that doesn't happen. And the early Christians knew that just as well as we do. Wright mentions C.S. Lewis, how he would respond to this kind of chronological snobbery. Lewis would say, people often imagine that the ancients didn't know the laws of nature. And now that we have modern science, we do. And he gives the example from the virgin birth. He says, the reason that Joseph was worried about Mary's pregnancy was not because he didn't know where babies come from, but because he did. That's why he was concerned. So Wright points out, it's the same with the resurrection. He says the disciples, they weren't going around saying, oh, well, isn't that interesting? So sometimes people come back from the dead. <laughs> no, this was not one instance of what now appeared to be a new possible general rule. Far from it. 
And this is a place where people often get confused because people say, oh, well, the Jews believed in resurrection. So when Jesus died, they naturally thought he'd come back. Well, no. Most Jews at the time did believe in resurrection, but resurrection, they believed, was something that God would do for all his people at the end of time. Nobody believed or imagined it would happen for one person in the middle. And you can test this, right, says, because a hundred years either side of Jesus, we know of several Jewish messianic movements. Routinely, they ended with the death of the founder, and we have accounts of what happened next. If the man you followed, who you believed is the king, the new leader, the one God has sent, if he gets killed, you have a choice. Either you give up the movement or you get yourself another leader. And we have evidence of movements doing one or the other of those things. In no case do we have people going around saying, actually, I think he's been raised from the dead. The Bible is not suggesting that you should stop being rational. People in Jesus' day were rational people who knew people don't just come back after they die. That's why the disciples were hopeless and dejected after Jesus died. They didn't believe in a resurrection that happens in the middle of time. They didn't believe. They had hope in a resurrection at the very end. But as for Jesus, all was lost. So here's the problem for us. Some people tell us, even if there's a God, you know, he never does anything that deviates from what we can scientifically observe. That's their testimony about how the world works, that they cannot scientifically prove. It's just what they think about how the world works. The Bible gives you another testimony. It, it says God can do things different than he normally does. And not only does it say he can, it says that he did. So we can rationally look at this, these facts and decide that Jesus really was raised from the dead. We can conclude that this, this testimony makes the best sense out of the facts. Lad lists out the facts of this case. One, Jesus was dead. And no real person uh, that studies this would say otherwise. Two, the disciples' hopes were gone. They were hiding from the Jewish leaders. They weren't looking for Jesus. Three, something changed, causing the disciples to stop hiding and to start telling people that Jesus was raised from the dead. Four, the tomb was empty. Nobody ever produced a body. In fact, there is no there's absolutely no evidence that anyone venerated Jesus' tomb. That was very common for somebody who was respected, revered. Jesus' tomb was never venerated because there was no body in it to venerate. Five, the disciples really believed that Jesus was raised from the dead. And understand, simply a missing body would not have been enough to do that. They were more rational than that, as Matthew will go on to show in the final verses of this chapter. If they did not believe, if they did not have a genuine belief in the resurrection of Jesus, they wouldn't have acted the way they did. And six, and here I'm going to quote Lad for this final crucial fact. Something happened to create in the disciples belief in Jesus' resurrection. And here's the crucial issue. 
It was not the disciples' faith that created the stories of the resurrection. It was an event lying behind these stories that created their faith. That event was the factual, physical, real resurrection of Jesus. That is the testimony that Matthew is giving us here. It's what makes the best sense out of the evidence. But it's not the only testimony to what happened. So let's listen to the alternative in verses 11 through 15, where we hear the witnesses against the resurrection. Matthew says that while the women are headed off to the disciples, some of the guard were headed to the chief priests. The chief priests, they seem to be the ones taking the initiative in all these things. They, they paid Judas to betray Jesus. They, they were involved in all these various plots, including the one to put the Roman guard there at the tomb. And so the Roman soldiers go to them, and they tell them all that has taken place. Now, we can't be sure what that included, but we can, we can be sure it included three facts. One, the earthquake. Two, the angel. And three, the empty tomb. So the chief priests had enough sense to bring in the other leaders to make sure they're all on the same page and how to respond. But understand the chief priest's perspective. The chief priests were most likely Sadducees. And Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection at all. They didn't believe it would ever happen. In fact, Acts 23.8 says that they didn't believe in angels. I mean, the Sadducees were essentially the secularists that we have today. They, if you're of a materialistic mindset where you don't think anything supernatural happens, the Sadducees are your guys. They thought the same thing. So they hear this testimony. They may not have been able to explain what happened, but from the start, they deny that there could be a resurrection. They deny that this angel is really an angel. And so they thought about, what are we going to do? There, there's a potential fallout for this mystery that's what's taken place. People could actually believe that Jesus was raised from the dead, so they had to stop it. They needed to cover it up, and that's what they do. But notice something. Their actions don't involve producing a body. You want to put a stop to this. What is the easiest way to put a stop to it? You find the body. You tell people, no, 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 he's right here. They didn't do that. So they're implicitly testifying to the fact that the tomb really was empty. And that's what they had to explain away. So with the help of the elders, they concoct this story. They tell these soldiers, they say, Tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. Does anybody else realize the problem with that story? If they're sleeping, how do they know who took the body? How do they know what happened if they're sleeping? And understand, it says this was a rich man's tomb with a large stone. If you're there to guard the tomb, it would be extremely noisy to move a great stone. That makes these guards the absolute worst guards in history. And they understood that. They recognized what this story was going to make them look like. And that's why these Jewish leaders offered them money. Enough money for them to, okay, we'll agree to tell that story. Now, there was more at stake than just their reputations as guards. Understand that falling asleep on the job and failing to do what your military commander ordered you to do, those were punishable offenses, even up to execution. So they needed more than just money. They needed assurances 
that they weren't going to get in any trouble with Pilate, and that's exactly what the Jewish leaders do. They promise, and if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. Pilate is not a fine, upstanding man himself. He's accepted bribes before. So it's very believable what they told him. Hey, we gave you money. We'll give him money. They'll do whatever it took so that Pilate would not give the, make any trouble out of this with them. And so they accept the deal. They took the money and did as they were directed. Now, Matthew then at the conclusion here, he gives us the reason why he's included this story when other gospel writers did not. He wants us to understand this version of the story, where it came from. He concludes, and this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. The early church leader known as Justin Martyr, he records his dialogue with a Jewish man named Trypho. Trypho mentions this very story, that the disciples stole the body. Justin Martyr lived in the second century. This story was popular enough that it had traction with the Jewish people even into the second century, not just in Matthew's day in the, in the 60s AD. So Matthew wants people to understand where this story came from. And that's why he included it in his gospel. But just, just think about how ridiculous this story is. Aside from the fact that they don't actually have a witness to who stole the body since the soldiers are supposed to be sleeping, it doesn't make any sense. D.A. Carson pointed out that if there was any evidence of theft, you can be sure these leaders would have, they would have prosecuted the disciples. Archaeologists have discovered a, an inscription in Nazareth. It's an ordinance given by Caesar himself against robbing tombs. Now, understand, these disciples, they're cowering in fear, and suddenly they're going to brazenly lie, and, and basically they, they give testimony, they openly criticize these Jewish leaders. What had these Jewish leaders just done? They had just crucified, they had made sure that their leader was crucified. They were not going to let these disciples get away with it. If they had any evidence, they would have used it. The story is really self-defeating because the disciples would go on to experience floggings and imprisonment and even death for something they knew was a lie if they were the ones that stole the body. Now, I realize it is hard to believe something that you've never personally experienced, especially something of this nature. And I agree with Ladd uh, concerning the goal in presenting this truth. He says, it is not our intention to prove the fact of the resurrection and thereby compel faith. We recognize that faith cannot be compelled by a recital of historical or objective facts, but only by the working of the Holy Spirit upon the human heart. But the Holy Spirit used the witness of the disciples to the reality of the resurrection of Christ, and we must here bear witness to the facts of the New Testament record. So I cannot prove to you that Jesus was raised from the dead. And in fact, if I attempt to do that, I actually deny the worldview of the Bible. But I can present this testimony as to what happened on that first Easter. Some might try to explain it away. But the Bible's testimony is that Jesus is the Messiah. He's the Christ. He's the king that God sent. And he was crucified. And he was raised on the third day. And the Bible is also clear that that was God's plan. Now, why would God plan for his son 
to be crucified and raised from the dead. Because we're all like sheep who've wandered from our shepherd. We've all determined that we don't need the direction of God. That we can figure out what's good for ourselves. But the Bible says we have not done what's good. We have not done what what our creator made us to do. And in his righteousness, God must punish our sin. And yet in his love, he sent his son to take on that punishment for everyone who stops their wandering and returns to him. The Bible presents a view of human history that's coming to a head. We're all going to stand before God someday. That's what the Bible's testimony is. But it says that the king that we're going to face on that day is actually the risen Jesus. In fact, the resurrection is God's testimony to that end time. The fact that one was raised from the dead to new life is his testimony that it's going to happen one day in the end. So by giving this testimony of the resurrection, God is telling you to repent. Stop trying to to live life on your own, to come back to him, to submit to Jesus. You can be accepted by God through what Jesus did. Jesus' death pays the punishment for the sin of everyone who trusts in him. His resurrection provides new life for us. So I would just tell you, believe that. Believe that that's true. And then join us as week in and week out, we are trying to hear what Jesus tells us, how we can follow him. If you already believe in Christ, crucified and risen, then this morning is meant to bolster your faith in the Bible's worldview. See, understand, the Bible views a world where there is more than just magnetic or electric power. There's more than the power of gravity or nuclear power. Bible, the Bible presents a reality where there is resurrection power. And understand, that's not a state of mind. It is as true as those other powers that I mentioned. And this morning, you need to hear this truth of this story that it, is, it has been seen. It's been demonstrated in history. And you know what? It continues to be demonstrated. You ask, where, where do I see resurrection power today? Understand Every time you turn from sin and seek to follow Jesus, that's resurrection power. We often have a a very bad mistake we make as Christians who I believe Jesus saves me and and I need to turn from my sin. And then we try to rely on ourselves. The resurrection is what we look to when we realize I have done the wrong thing. I need to rely on that power. It is powerful. To raise someone to new life. That's what we look to. Don't look to yourself. You can't do the right thing on your own. That's why we come to Jesus. The resurrection is what we look to when we say, I need to do the right thing. And I'm going to do it not in my own strength, not in my own power, but in the resurrection power. The power of the Holy Spirit who raised Christ from the dead. That is how we act. So in faith, do that. Do you believe Matthew's testimony? He is risen. Do you believe that? Join me in prayer.
Jesus, we, we pray to you who, not just some spirit in, in the ethereal existence, we, we believe that you died, you rose, and you are now seated at the right hand of your Father. And we, we pray to you, speaking to a person who's real. We believe that. We want to thank you for your sacrifice. We want to thank you for when you, you didn't have to do it. You didn't have to take our place. You willingly did that. So thank you, Jesus, for doing that for us. We do not deserve it. And we thank you for bravely marching up that hill, for bravely taking on the cross. And we want to thank you for this resurrection life that you now share with us. Even as we sang what, yes, or on Friday, why, why should we gain from your reward? There's, there's no reason why we should gain from your reward of resurrected life. You share that with us. We thank you for that. Even sharing it with us now. Sharing with us the power to turn from sin, to follow you, to listen to you. Thank you. And we'd ask that you would, you would demonstrate by your spirit the, the truth of this story about you. That you would cause people to pay attention to it by your spirit, that they would see their need for you. See that they're sinners. See that they need to turn from their sin. Whatever their hang-ups may be, whatever excuses they might try to pull to justify their rejection of you, whether they claim hypocrisy or Christians that don't do the right thing, we are, we are failures, Jesus, you know that. It's no excuse for us to be failures. But you're not a failure. That you would demonstrate that for anyone who doubts, anyone who questions that you are the real deal. We do ask for strength because there is no excuse for our failures. We would recognize that we don't believe we have any standing in heaven except through you. And that by your power, we would demonstrate changed lives. That you, by your spirit, would make us more like you. Keep making us more like you. Help us even now to respond as we ought to. Amen.